0: I remember taking a Christian leadership survey uh, in college, and, and one of the areas they talked about was measuring about pride. And I remember thinking, I don't, I don't really struggle with pride. You know, like you see prideful people. I'm, I'm a pretty, pretty humble dude. You know, that's not, that's not really something that's uh, something I need to work on. What I didn't realize at the time that this statement was probably one of the most prideful things that I could ever say. Saying or thinking you don't struggle with pride is like denying that you have a need to breathe. Pride is such a part of our existence. Where you find people, there you find pride. Author C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, speaks of what it is like to meet a humble person. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble. Nowadays, he will be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, me because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggest step, too, at least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited. Ronnie in college he needed to hear that. I would have probably said "ouch" uh, from the audience. Pastor C.J. Mahaney he defines humility, true humility, as nothing less than a battle against the pride that lives within every heart. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness, and in our sinfulness. These two realities must be the foundation of any definition of humility. Our sinfulness and God's holiness. More importantly, we see that God's holy word time and time again is warnings against pride and a call to humility. 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 66, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and in contrite in spirit. Proverbs 15, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Isaiah 2, the haughty looks of man they will be, shall be bought low, the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Paul has been urging the Philippians to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. We saw Paul's exhortation last week, Philippians 1.27, to only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In our passage today, we'll see more of what this life worthy of the gospel looks like. It's blessings, it's characteristics, how it is lived out in our everyday life. This life worthy of the gospel is a life of Christ-exalting, others-loving humility. Let us pray that we would exemplify the humility of our Savior. Let's pray. Dear God, we open up your word, not to examine it, but to be examined by it. Lord, may we be mastered by you. May we hear these truths. May they penetrate our hearts, Lord. Show us our need for you. May they kill our self-reliance. May they kill our pride. May we walk in the footsteps of our Savior. Amen. May we pray. Amen. Paul reminds these Philippian Christians and us today. First of the blessings we share in verse 1. He then gives us action steps, letting us know the people we must become in verse 2. And lastly, in verses 3 and 4, we're showing the blueprint of our daily living, the individual attitude we must possess, the blessings we share, the people we must become, the individual attitudes. Let's first look at the blessings we share in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul starts out this chapter with a lot of innings. He's making an argument from experience. If you have had any experience in Christ that has led to encouragement, if you have been comforted from the love of God and other Christians, he's building a case. If you have any of this, then later we will see as a result, then you are to live like this. Then you are to do this. The if here can kind of throw us off as, as if these were unknown possibilities. But make no mistake. Paul may use the word if, but these blessings of the Christian life that he's referring to, these are certain realities. It would be like saying, if there is any tastiness in cheeseburgers. If there's any sun and sand in the beach, any bickering and contention around midterm elections, these are sure things. The if there might be more clear if it was replaced with as surely as. Let's look through these four blessings, replacing it with as surely as. As surely as there is encouragement in Christ. Christ is the source of our encouragement, upon which all others flow out. Even when we fail each other, on our rainiest of days, God's sure provision through Christ is a constant that we can look to for encouragement. As surely as there is comfort from love, the love of God, the love of other Christians, during our time with Philippians, there's been a big emphasis, again and again, on joy, despite suffering, forsaking our comfort for the advance of the gospel, but have no doubt knowing and having an intimate relationship with the Savior with his church, there is profound enduring comfort that cannot be found elsewhere. This comfort is constant it stands up to every circumstance heavens and earth can throw at it because it is found in the eternal promises of God. Just listen to this comfort we possess as Christians in second Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort comfort, from love and community, all of it being empowered by the sacrificial love of Jesus. As surely as there is participation in the Spirit. Another word for participation will be fellowship in the Spirit, communion in the Spirit, a common inheritance that we all share in Christ. Anyone trusting in Christ for salvation, we are fellow heirs with a common possession of the Holy Spirit. The very nature of humans that are being dwelt by God is that there is a fellowship. There's a unity and an unbreakable bond in the spirit. Lastly, as surely as there is any affection and sympathy, tenderness and compassion are at the very heart. How can his followers operating in his love not possess the affection of their Savior? All four of these clauses, they serve to reassure us and to remind us that God is binding his people together with cords of love. These blessings are the staples of Christian community and are the fruit and blessings of being made a new creation in Christ and living as a part of his covenant community. And what these confident realities of these blessings do is they build this foundation for Paul for the urgent call to action that he asks the church in verse 2. Because these things are true, because you possess them now, go and do. We've seen the blessings we share. Now let's look at the people we must become in verse 2. Paul tells them Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. For the Philippian believers, to do these things is to complete Paul's joy. Keep in mind, Paul is writing this as he is unjustly imprisoned, facing affliction and his potential death. But this would be the completion of his joy. So little regard for self, just a great desire for the well-being of the church, his brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants them to level up for the blessings they have received, and to see the church united in mind, heart, and spirit, acting as one. Is this something that we yearn for? Can be like described as something that would complete our joy, that would absolutely excite us. If we, honest, if we answer honestly, probably not. Our letter might read, "Help! I'm stuck in jail. Get me out." That would complete my joy. A few observations about Paul's joy. First, his joy was focused on spiritual. Needs. More than a physical sure Paul cared about the physical for the spiritual well-being and growth of the primary second observation about his joy is that it was occupied with the welfare of others remarkably others sinner how often does your joy come from others succeeding celebrating others and their growth and third, the grows in unity. Paul's not seeking his agenda. He's not seeking his platform. But only that they grow together in the Lord. May God give us these desires that Paul possessed: To see each other grow into spiritual maturity. To see our minds fixed on the internal instead of the temporary. To know that this life is short and this suffering will serve his purpose. May the unity of the church and the growth of our fellow brothers and sisters be something that gets our hearts excited, even if we're sitting in a jail cell. The specifics of what completes Paul's joy it's, a, it's being of the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here you have all of our human experience, having unity in our mind, the same love, unity in our emotions in full accord, having the same will. This is a picture of complete harmony. Full accord is literally a translation of, true, of two Greek words, meaning one soul. Tonight, I run a little bit of a risk here, but tonight, by God's grace, we will have our first members meeting as Covenant Hope Church. We get to discuss fun stuff like the church budget. I can't predict how tonight will go. But I believe it will go well. I believe it will be a sweet time, even as we look at spreadsheets. Because the love and the unity that is in this very room. How great is it that we are able to trust each other as godly members who want the best for the church? How great is it when you are able to submit to godly, God-appointed leadership? No one seeking our personal agendas or looking to get our way, but looking out for the good of the church in the furtherance of the gospel and St. Peter's nation. This unity of the Spirit, it empowers believers to work together as one person. Growing up in church, I remember... Pastors would come and go every couple years and get the search committee out, every couple years, about every three or four years. And the deacons in the church, they weren't always the most spiritual people. Uh, they they weren't respectable businessmen in the community a lot of the time. But their their job, they were the guys who sort of kept, I don't think this was in a job description, but unofficially, their job was to kind of keep the pastor in line, keep protect the congregation from the pastors some sense. If he was thinking too highly of himself or he wasn't meeting the needs of the congregation, people would go to the deacons. The deacons would then sometimes threaten the pastor, apply pressure, say you need to shape up or ship out. What a mess. Good morning man. No wonder every three years with a new pastor, people were going in and out world look at churches like these see no difference in unity compared to the corporate workplace. The corporate workplace is probably more forthright about it. When we become preoccupied with our own personal agendas, we can split the church into separate interest groups. divisions are overcome as we band together head in the same direction and christ is the one common subject that unites that bonds us together a few thoughts about our, our unity as we seek to apply these truths to our lives notice paul desires for them to have the same love not to love the same things he's not asking them to have the same thoughts or feelings about everything like some copy-paste robot clones of each other. He wants them to seek the same goal with a like mind and the same love from God. But in this unity, it is not always uniformity. We're all different parts of the body, with different experiences, different giftings. We're able to celebrate the diversity in our family of faith while holding true to the gospel and holding true to the word of God next is harmony. It is a goal for sure. But that does not mean that we don't have discernment and question things or challenge each other and disagree. Sometimes uh, in Christian circles, unlike the church I grew up in, we can go too far the other way. Never question anything. Never speak up. You know, hey, maybe that pastor shouldn't have that second private death. Okay for the first one, you know. It's got to get around, but two? <laughs> Just like being a part of any close-knit family, there's going to be disagreements. That's okay. But what matters is that we disagree well, that we seek to strengthen each other in the Lord. We can learn far more about ourselves in the way we disagree together. Lastly, there cannot not be true unity if there is inner apathy. We can't just kind of passively have unity, right? We all wear our unity t-shirts, come in. It doesn't work. It's not that easy. Like-mindedness is more than just simple agreeableness. Yes, we agree that Jesus is Lord, but far more than agreeing, it is submitting. life worthy of the gospel is a life of unity. Unity is what's needed to stand together in a hostile world. And as Christians are seeking after the same goal, the advancement of the gospel, we can forge ahead together, having the same mind, the same love, and the same spirit. We've seen the people we must become in verse 2. Now let's turn to the individual attitudes we must possess. In verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. The attitude of selfish ambition drives a person to vain conceit. As Christians, we should have nothing of the sort among us. Another word for conceit here is empty glory. This story is like a false illusion. As I was trying to think about how to portray this sense of false glory, I kept coming back to this image of a claw machine in an arcade. And put in your money, and you try to time it just right so that the claw picks up a stuffed animal. My girls sometimes get fixated. It's as if that's the only machine in the arcade. They want to win something, a surprise from the claw machine. As a good father, I try my best to win them a cheap stuffed animal. They're like, I want that purple one in the middle, and I'm like, what about the gray one on the edge that I could actually get? I'll try anywhere from five to 10 times, and sometimes I'll get it. You would think it would be worth it to see this joy on a child's face as you hand them this animal. But, but suddenly, the animal outside the glass kind of loses its value like a like driving a new car off the lot. It's like 90% of its value gone. They realize it's cheap, they realize it's not what they thought it was or not the one they wanted, and they quickly move on to the next thing. You talk about a deceptive glory. And while this is just a small silly taste, I hear that some of us live in such a way working towards an end goal, living for a lesser glory that all we will have is a proverbial discount stuffed animal to show for. Seeking things, motivated by our own selfish ambition, rather than true humility. Greek culture despised humility because they sought to elevate humanity, to be the pinnacle of humanity, and to liberate it from its weaknesses and its sufferings. Humility baffled Paul's first-century readers in Philippi. In our American context, it can baffle us too. Our culture is so enamored with pride that when we see true humility, much like the Greeks, we don't always understand it. In fact, we can see it as weakness. You may read this, this, this verses and we consider humility and pride, and you're tempted to think of, of greedy Wall Street brokers who are conceited We're putting others down in order to gain a higher status but without our hearts changing as we look at the purpose of our lives we live primarily for ourselves not living for the one who made us who has a complete claim over our lives every breath we take we can attribute to god's goodness but instead we find ourselves living as if we are our own god doing what's right in our own eyes outside of christ we are all living for vain glory no matter what we glory in we've settled for a lesser glory if our hearts are not set on the things of eternity and one day we're going to stand in final judgment to give an account of how we lived our lives you may hear people talk about living for others it's a common talking point businesses and celebrities politicians waxing poetically about how we should live and live for others no matter their words if we were to evaluate their lives take a magnifying glass to their hearts while they have done some good for others i'm sure primarily we live to serve ourselves and live to serve themselves our hearts are so twisted that we can perceived a certain way, or for our own self-advancement. In our sin, we're all self-deceived, choosing to live for this vain glory that will not last. We see this reality of our lives in judgment before God in 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that everyone may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes 12, very similarly, the end of the matter, all has been heard, Hear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. What a terrible thing to face judgment before a holy and righteous God. You may hear these things and be like, "You're, you're exaggerating sin. We're not evil in this sense. And what we have to realize is that the purpose of our life, of every one of our lives, my life, your life, is not to be judged by our flimsy standards of right and wrong. Our good and bad It's to be judged by his standards. Look at how our lives are to be fully devoted to God. (laughs) Jesus says in Matthew 10, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Loving God more than my most intimate relationships, taking up our cross of daily sacrifice in pursuit of his kingdom, our love for God is to be the supreme love story of our lives. And how we settle for things that were never meant to satisfy. Not only are we to love God above all else, we are also called to perfection. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You might think, but, but God is loving. So I didn't live for him perfectly. I, I love other things and people a little bit more than God, but, but what about grace? Where's grace in this. God's a loving God. God is all loving, but he's also just. And his justice system is never flawed. For God to overlook our sin, he would cease to be a just judge. He would be corrupt if he did not rightly punish evil. We will only see glimpses during our time on earth, but in God, there's only perfect love and perfect justice. When we hold up the mirror of God's law to our lives, we see that we are lacking. We see that we are incapable Rightly understood, this should crush us. But thankfully, it does not happen here. In the coming weeks, we're going to see, hopefully, with all the grandeur that we can imagine, the humility of Jesus who came to save us. Philippians we'll chapter 2, verses 6 to the Bible. Who, though he was the So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. This is the solution. God did not leave us in our sin. He provided the way to redemption, the way to be right with God. We would just stop trusting in ourselves, in our works, turn from our sin, place our trust in the one who lived the life we never could, the one who poured out himself for us. This is how God's perfect justice is upheld, along with his gracious, loving forgiveness. A perfect sinless sacrifice was made, was made, and we get to receive it as a gift. We get to live our lives not for vain glory, resurrection, we share the same victory over sin and death that he does. The crowd saw him as weak. They mocked him in his humility and was silent before his accusers. And just as he was called, he calls us to this work of love by taking the very nature of the servant. In humility, he counted others as more significant than us. As Christians, we're to follow the one whose entire mission, entire life, is self-denial. In obedience to the Heavenly Father, we gain, we gain, we owe love and encouragement to others because we have been given so much. We should be humble because we possess nothing in our own strength. That we have, he gave us. In verse four, we see our last little bit of instruction as we think about our individual attitude. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Instead of being preoccupied with our introspective, self-absorbed, egocentric thoughts, our mind should turn outwards to regard the value of others. Seeing these precious souls for what they really are. Looking here means paying careful attention to, paying careful attention to the needs of others. Notice here, he is not advocating for some total stealth It is right for us to order our lives for the blessings God has given us, that even more so, we are able and should look to the interests of others. Let the needs of others surpass yours, Put them in first place. Give them the place of honor. In Christ, we can possess a self-denying interest in the welfare of others. We can serve them. We can strengthen them, encourage them. We're, we're not to enjoy the comforts of the gospel, to only enjoy the comforts of the gospel, but we're to pass them on. I fear this morning, when you hear me asking to give of yourselves, that I'm asking for you to deprive yourself give and give and give and get nothing. And we may get nothing in a worldly sense. If we look back at the passage I read earlier in Matthew 10, which were to love Jesus more than our loved ones, which were to take up our cross daily, it concludes in verse 39. It says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will find sin in Christ, we get so much. We get fulfillment in this life and fulfillment in the life to come. There are treasures forever born. It's a beautiful thing for all of eternity. We will sing praises to our great God. And in losing our life for Christ, we are never compromising. We are completely gaining. A few practical applications as we close out with this passage. We seek to live this out. First, it is much harder to be something than it is to do something. We can fake the posture of humility or integrity for a little while, but to truly be a person of integrity, to truly be humble, is a result of the transformation. Thankfully, God is in the transforming business. In our salvation, we're transformed. In our sanctification, every day, every week, every month, we're transformed. Giving ourselves to the things of God. I would encourage you, soak up his word. Pray often. Live in Christian community. Lean into each other's lives. As we steep in these graces, I just love the analogy of like a tea bag in water. We're exposed time and time again. We're slowly becoming a people, turning from water into tea, turning from self-ambition, selfish ambition, to humility. Becoming a people that are something rather than just those who do something, turn something on our artificial food. Next, we are so often we are focused on our needs, our wants our desires, ways in which others have failed us. Whether it's our friends, family, or our church, let's first think of their needs, their wants, their desires. Maybe the best thing you can do leaving here is ask someone you love, is there any way that I, I look to my interests while not regarding yours? How can I serve you better? How can I consider your needs above mine? Children, think of the blessing you can be to serve your family before yourself. Spouses, think of how your marriage might be changed by both of you living in this way. Think of how our love and concern for unbelieving coworkers might change if we put their needs above our own. If we risk our relational capital and risk being perceived as weird by sharing the hope of the gospel with them, motivated by love. Think of how our church can grow if we all possess the same unity and mindset towards each other. We'll see tonight, right? Lastly, beware of pride as it is the great enemy of humility. A John Stott quote that I hold on to, absolute gold, tell myself time and time again, at every step of our Christian development, in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Pride manifests itself in so many ways, in our prayerlessness, in our fear, in our entitlement, our lack of gratitude. The issue facing us as we examine our life is not if pride is present, but where it is present. For most of us, it's so deeply ingrained in our lives that only a great amount of spirit-guided self-examination can help to all out. And killing our pride as we look to Christ. And now, as we've considered the light and humility that we are called to live in Christ, one grace that we are blessed by is celebrating the sacrament of Supper together. This taking of the bread and the fruit of the vine is a visual picture of the gospel in which we can rejoice in. the supper, not only do we hear about Jesus' death for us, but we see his body given for us. We taste, we smell, and we touch. The Lord's Supper, supper has several meanings of profound significance. It looks back in remembrance of Jesus' initiation of the new covenant by shedding his blood on the cross. The Lord's Supper symbolizes and seals the blessings of our salvation for Christians. It's not just us doing something in God's presence. It is God doing something for us, confirming the covenant promise, guaranteeing the truth of what Jesus says in Scripture, that whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up lord's supper also celebrates christ's very real spiritual presence with us here in this moment even in a small church plan god is doing something for us and through us in the sacrament that he is of course present with us in matthew 18 he has promised us where two or three are gathered in my name there i am among them lord's supper looks forward to that glorious day, the culmination of history. Christ did not remain dead. He was resurrected. He ascended and he will return. In 1 Corinthians 11.26, Paul declares, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We have a hopeful future. And lastly, the Lord's Supper testifies of believers. First Corinthians 10. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. We all partake of one bread. The communion table today at Covenant Hope is open to all baptized believers who are members of this church or another church that preaches this same gospel. They're walking faithfully with Christ as our Lord and not a baptized Christian, if you're not a member of a gospel claiming church, if you're not walking faithfully with the Lord, or if you have broken relationships with another brother or sister in Christ, we would ask you not to participate. The Bible warns us in 1 Corinthians 11, that whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine themselves and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In a moment, if you wish to partake of the supper, we're going to pass the elements down in each row. Please take a moment to pray and to meditate on the meaning of the sacrament. Then we'll eat the bread and drink the cup together, symbolizing our unity.